just to repeat them page 868 in the church bibles page 868 the first epistle of John chapter 2 verses 1 to 6 when I read this before the service I was amazed at how direct John is very direct no diplomacy here my dear children I write this to you so that you will not sin but if anyone does sin we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense Jesus Christ the righteous one he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins not only for our sins and not only for our sins but also for the sins of the whole world we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands the man who says I know him but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in him but if anyone obeys his words, word God's love is truly made complete in him this is how we know we are in him whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did just this may God bless the reading of his word thank you Jeremy very much indeed <clears throat> well let's um, have our Bibles open at that passage and uh, I'm going to ask for God's help that we should understand it <coughs> excuse me Heavenly Father we, we thank you that you speak to us by your Spirit, through your Word. And we pray that this part of your Word that we're looking at together this morning would come to us clearly and plainly, searchingly and helpfully. And we commend our time to you now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you picked up from Brenda's prayers, this is Reformation Week. Uh, for centuries, the, <clears throat> the Church has chosen this particular week to look back and to thank God for the revolution that began with Martin Luther nailing his famous protest on the door of the Church in Wittenberg. Uh, the date was the 31st of October, 1517, 31st of October was last Friday. The main concern for uh, Luther and his followers was that for generations uh, the church had silenced the voice of God. They'd elevated the authority of the church above the authority of the Bible. In other words, they'd put the words of men above the word of God and the result of course was that the gospel was all but lost uh, before Martin Luther came along if you'd gone along to your local pastor and asked him to explain the gospel the chances are he wouldn't have had the slightest idea what you were talking about the great victory of the reformation was the recovery of the bible as the sole authority 
in matters of faith and above all the recovery of gospel truth. Now when I was uh, starting to prepare this particular series I had absolutely no idea that we would reach this particular passage in Reformation Week. But quite clearly an unseen hand was at work because this morning we find the Apostle John writing about the truth that lies right at the very heart of the Gospel and about the extraordinary transformation that takes place in the lives of those who believe it. Now I think I do need to say that because you see John isn't simply giving us here a theological lecture. Now John's purpose in this paragraph is to show us that truth leads to transformation. He's reminding us that when people respond to the gospel that Christ quite literally puts new life into them. So we're not here, you see, talking about uh, a person's good qualities. Uh, It's not about whether a person is uh, good company uh, or highly intelligent or kind to the underprivileged or whatever it is. No, John is talking about the radical transformation that Christ brings about in the life of every believer, if they're real Christians, without exception. Let me give you uh, an illustration from military history to show you what I'm talking about. Uh, It concerns a man called William Dobby. Uh, William Dobby was born in 1879 and he was converted to Christ at the age of 14. Uh, Like uh, many of his contemporaries, uh, when he was of age, he joined the British Army where he rose to the rank of Lieutenant General. Uh, In World War I, he was known as the officer who would walk through the endless miles of trenches uh, lifting the morale of his troops and he was the officer who sent the famous telegram at 11am on the 11th of the 11th to confirm that the war was over. In World War II he was appointed as governor of Malta, uh, Malta in the Mediterranean. And Malta turned out to be the most bombed place on earth at that time, suffering three air raids a day, every day. But William Dobby's prayerfulness and godliness and courage so inspired the islanders that every one of them stayed, nobody left, none of them lost hope. However, one particular incident, I think, shows that William Dobby was not just a great man, but he was a thoroughly transformed man. In 1929, uh, he was put in charge of a peacekeeping force in Palestine and uh, his battalion was stationed in a place that just happened to be across the valley from Calvary. While they were stationed there, uh, his troops were all given a copy of the New Testament and Dobby wrote a paragraph to go inside each one. This is what he wrote. You are stationed at the place where the central event in human history occurred, namely the crucifixion of the Son of God. You may see the place where this happened, 
and you may read the details in this book. As you do this, you cannot help being interested. But your interest will change into something far deeper when you realise that the event concerns you personally. It was for your sake that the Son of God died on the cross here. The realisation of this fact cannot but produce a radical change in one's life. And the study of this book, under God's guidance, will help you to such a realisation. Yes, Dobby's life was thoroughly transformed by the Gospel. And at the end of his life, when he was 85, he wrote this in his diary. Vital and uninterrupted contact with our Heavenly Father is the most wonderful thing in the world. Now you see, what Dobby wrote echoes precisely what John is talking about in this letter. That to have fellowship with God, to have a deep, real, peace-producing, life-changing, strength-giving relationship with God is actually the most wonderful thing in the world. And it's the only relationship that will outlast this world. And in our passage this morning, John is telling us two vital things about this fellowship that God offers to everyone, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done. First, he gives us the reason we can have fellowship with God at all. And second, he gives us the proof that if we think we have this fellowship, that it's real. The reason, the proof. So firstly then, the reason we can have fellowship with God. Verses 1 and 2. Please will you notice in verse 1 that John addresses his readers as my dear children. So, you see, he's talking to Christians and it's quite possible that John may have led some of them to faith personally. Of course, we can't be sure of that. The text doesn't say that. But what we can be sure of is that verse 1 introduces a sudden change of mood in the letter. In last week's passage, uh, John was exposing the, the false claims to fellowship with God that were being made by troublemakers, you remember, who had left the church. But this week, he's speaking to believers. Believers inside the churches. He thinks of them as his spiritual children. He has a deep pastoral concern for their spiritual welfare. So the tone of this whole section, verses 1 to 6, is to reassure them and to comfort them. And he begins by recognising the tension in the Christian life. This is a tension that every Christian feels and which sometimes, I think, causes us enormous anguish. What is it? Well, in verse 1, John says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. 
Now you see, friends, however improbable it might seem to you and me this morning, God's purpose for you and me is that we should be sinless. When Jesus died, he wasn't simply rescuing us from the penalty of sin. No, he was rescuing us from its power as well. That, of course, is the point of chapter 1, verse 9, where, so that when we confess our sins, yes, God really is faithful and just. He really does forgive us our sins. But that's not the whole story, is it? God is also determined, isn't he, to purify us from all unrighteousness. Notice that word, all. It's not just some unrighteousness or the worst forms of unrighteousness. No, it's all unrighteousness. So you see, the people who've had their sins forgiven in chapter 1 are those who go on to experience the purifying power of God, which has just got one objective in view, that you and I should be purified from unrighteousness in all its forms. And here at the beginning of chapter 2, John is saying that the first sign that God is doing this in your life is that you too are vigorously engaged in the lifelong battle against sin. And I need to say that because if we're not engaged in that battle in any measure, if the attitude of our hearts is, well, once saved, always saved, a little sin here and there doesn't really matter, well, then John would say to you, that's a sign that you're not yet really a Christian at all. Every real Christian is constantly on the alert against all sin and all temptation. But here's the tension. In chapter 1, verse 8, John has also said, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. So you see, there is a very real tension in the Christian life. But that's Christian realism, brothers and sisters. Although we are constantly fighting against it, in this life, no Christian can claim to be without sin. That state of perfection will only be ours when we get to heaven. And in the meantime, there will be times when sin gets the better of us. And in those moments, you see, we can become anxious that our fellowship with God has been fractured, has been broken. And John understands that anguish. And to help us deal with it, he points us to two life-saving aspects of Jesus' ministry. The first is in the second sentence of verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1, second sentence. But if anybody does sin... We have one who speaks to the Father in our defence, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. Now I have to say that that phrase, one who speaks to the Father in our defence, is actually a rather weak translation. It implies that when we sin, Jesus 
stands uh, before the Father pleading special circumstances on our behalf in the hope that God will let us off the hook. I suppose it's what um, Oscar's defence team were doing in his murder trial. Uh, They were saying, weren't they, you know, it was an accident. Uh, We know that he pulled the trigger half a dozen times, but actually he didn't really mean to do it, so please will you let him off. Now that is not the idea here. The phrase, one who speaks to the Father in our defence, is actually just one word in the original, which the ESV translates rather better. It gives us the word advocate. Now that's, of course, a word that we can all understand. John wants us to know that when we do sin, Jesus is our full-time advocate in heaven. He's making the point that Jesus has the best possible qualifications to plead our case. How does he do it? Well, in those times when we're filled with with shame and with sorrow because we've let the Saviour down and we know it, Jesus sees exactly what's going on. And in that moment, he turns to the Father and he says, you see what he just did? I paid for that. And an hour later, when we mess up again, Jesus says, Father, he's done it again, but I paid for that too. And the Father says, I know you did. How can I ever forget it? How can I ever fail to forgive him and lift him up and bless him? That's what it means for Jesus to be our advocate with the Father. And it is meant to give us tremendous comfort, especially when we stumble and fall. But somebody will say, well, okay, what did Jesus actually do so that instead of punishing us as our sins deserve, the Father actually forgives us and our fellowship with him is preserved? And John replies by pointing to the second life-saving aspect of Jesus' ministry. It's there in verse 2. He says, Jesus Christ is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now again, uh, that word atoning sacrifice is in fact just one word in the original. Um, The ESV is these days the best word-for-word translation of the Bible you can find. Uh, taking us right back to the original languages. And it translates that word as propitiation. Now that's an unusual word. Uh, It's not a word that you and I use every day. But it is a very important word because it tells us that Jesus has solved the biggest problem arising from our sin. Now what is that? Well, it's not social. Uh, The biggest problem of your sin and mine is not that it causes fights and ultimately wars. Those are horrible things, but they're not the biggest problem of human sin. Nor is it that sin leads to guilt and sadness. 
of course, sin does eventually produce guilt and sadness, then that too is a problem. Uh, it really does seem, doesn't it, that Oscar is genuinely sad about what he's done. But once again, guilt and sadness are not the biggest problem. No, the biggest problem created by your sin and mine is that God is angry about it. And you see, God's anger is not like your anger or mine, which tend to be uncontrolled outbursts of temper. No, God's anger is his unchanging, righteous determination to destroy sin and the sinner. So it's very serious. And we saw that, didn't we, in our series in Genesis, in the the judgment of the flood and uh, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And you remember that we said at the time that these events were recorded as warnings for us. Warnings of what God does when people ignore his word and live their lives without any reference to him whatsoever. God is filled with wrath. Now I know that uh, whenever the preacher starts talking about wrath, uh, people in the congregation get rather twitchy. Uh, They know there's a great deal about the wrath of God in the Old Testament, but they say that's not New Testament Christianity, is it? Well, what are we to make of Jesus' words in the Gospel of John? Jesus says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Was Jesus mistaken? What about the Apostle Paul? In Ephesians, Paul says that before our conversion, we were, by nature, objects of wrath. Was Paul exaggerating? Friends, you know, I think instead of being embarrassed to talk about the wrath of God, I think our generation rather needs to be ashamed that we have invented a God who is careless about sin and so spineless that he doesn't do anything about it. Because the plain message of the New Testament is that God is neither careless nor spineless. And we need to be truly, truly thankful that God hates sin and evil more than we do. And you see, what John is reminding us of in verse 2 is that God has made a way so that people like us, people who do evil, who have fallen into evil, and as Jesus says elsewhere, are actually evil, can have a way of escape. And that way of escape is the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Because you see, when Christ died on the cross, he took the full force of God's wrath 
that should have fallen on you and me. That's what that word propitiation means. It means to divert the wrath of God away from me and onto Christ. As he hung there, Christ's fellowship with the Father was broken so that our fellowship with the Father may never be broken. And you remember, don't you, that as he died, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Why was that? Because God was giving us an unmistakable sign that the way into his presence, the way for fellowship with him, was open. And it means that, as far as we're concerned, the death of Christ was a problem-solving sacrifice. It was a rescue-making sacrifice. It was a justice-bearing sacrifice. It was a wrath of God-absorbing sacrifice. It was a guilt-removing sacrifice. In short, it was a fellowship-fixing sacrifice. And friends, you see, this is the reason that you and I can have fellowship with God. And not just you and I. Because verse 2 says that his atoning sacrifice was for the sins of the whole world. So you see, this is a global invitation for everybody from your next door neighbour to the people persecuting our brothers and sisters around the globe. This is the truth at the very heart of the gospel. And if you understand it, you'll be thinking, well, this is the best news in the world. But you'll also be asking, well, how can I know that this is true for me? That I have this fellowship with God? And that brings us to the second point that John is making in this passage, which is the proof that we do have fellowship with God in verses 3 to 6. Now, as you know, the, the title for our series is Proof of Life. And the reason for that is that in this letter, John's purpose is to prove to his Christian readers that they really do have fellowship with God. He doesn't want them to be anxious or uncertain about it. And so he gives us three tests or proofs that every Christian can use in order to be sure that he or she really does have fellowship with God. The first is the moral test, or the test of obedience. Now that's the test that's introduced in this paragraph in verses 3 to 6. And of course this paragraph is just a short introduction. And like the, the other two tests, John is going to return to it again later in the letter. The second is the, the test of love, which is introduced in verses 7 to 11. And we'll be looking at that next Sunday morning, God willing. And the third is the test of truth, which we'll come to in a fortnight's time 
in verses 18 to 27. But to call them tests might not be the best way of thinking about them. It's actually the word that the older commentators use, but it might be misleading. Because these aren't the kind of tests that you had at school that that were designed to trip you up. Uh, prep school, my teachers were always far more interested in finding out what I didn't know rather than discovering the little I did actually know. But John isn't doing that. Now, John's purpose is to reassure the believer rather than to give him cause for alarm. And what's so special about these tests? Well, The point that he's making is that these things are completely unnatural. Because by nature, you and I aren't remotely interested in obeying God's commands. By nature, we don't love other Christians. And by nature, we certainly don't believe gospel truth. But if these things are happening in your life, even in a small way, well then, says John, that is proof that God really is at work in you. That you really do have fellowship with God. And the reason that John is keen to prove this to us is to encourage each of us to do these things more and more. That is, to persevere in right thinking, right living, and right relationships because if that happens our assurance about our fellowship with God will go on being strengthened and we will start living useful Christian lives and the first proof of fellowship with God is the proof of obedience and you'll find that if you come with me to verse 3 verse 3 We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. Now straight away let me say that doesn't mean that the believer somehow achieves a state of moral perfection. We're not a bunch of people pretending to be perfect. No, when we gather on Sunday mornings to confess our sins, we should mean it. But what John is saying is that the first sign that you have fellowship with God is that your life starts to move in a new direction. It means that God has given us a new interest in hearing his word and in doing his word that we didn't have before. And I know that some of you here this morning know exactly what John's talking about. Some of you can look at your life and say, well, I know that I'm not where I was six months ago. I know my relationship with God is real because by God's grace, I long that little bit more to obey his commands and I'm increasing in my understanding of how great his love is for me. But why obedience? What's so significant about that? In what way does it prove that our fellowship with God is real? Well, imagine for a moment that you work for a company 
where the chairman has personally chosen all the employees off the street, including you. Before he found you, you were unemployed, you had no money, no home, and no hope. But the chairman found you and gave you a secure job and the best possible training, and he also gave you and your family a comfortable home to live in, so your life has been totally transformed. And now you have an unshakable loyalty and devotion to the chairman and you tell your friends everything that he's done for you. But a day comes when the chairman has to leave the country on business. And so before he leaves, he gets uh, you together with all the staff and he says, look, while I'm away, I want you to look after the business. I'm going to be sending you regular emails telling you what to do until I return. Will you do it? And of course, everybody agrees. Well, he leaves and as it turns out, he's actually away for a couple of years. But during that time, he keeps sending regular emails with clear instructions. But eventually, when he does return, even as he's walking up to the front door of the office, he can see that everything is in a total shambles. There are weeds in the flower beds. Several of the office windows have been smashed and not repaired. The girl on reception is fast asleep. And there's heavy metal rock music blaring out of the boardroom. And when the chairman uh, opens his laptop to look at the finances, he discovers that instead of making a profit, the company has suffered a devastating loss. And so he, understandably, gathers all the staff together and he says, What happened? Didn't you receive my emails? And you reply, Well, yes, we got all your emails. In fact, we even printed them out and bound them in this book. Actually, we thought your emails were so brilliant that some of us have even memorised them. And while you were away, we, we met for email study every Sunday morning. But the chairman says, But what did you actually do with the instructions in my emails? And you reply, Do? Well, we didn't actually do anything. But we thoroughly enjoyed reading all of them. Promise. Now, I know that's an absurd illustration. But that's the absurdity of the claim in verse 4. Just look at verse 4. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. You see, like the employees in that little illustration, this man's life contradicts the claim that he's making. Because if God really had opened his eyes to accept Jesus as the atoning sacrifice for his sins, God's wrath not coming onto him but onto Jesus, then he would have wanted to obey his commands simply to prove his devotion. Those two things always go together. And John says, you see, that longing, that, that desire to obey is a sign that God's love is completing its purpose in us. And what is that purpose? Well, it's there in verse 6. Whoever claims to live in him 
must walk as Jesus did. Now friends, that is an amazing verse. Because it's saying that fellowship with God isn't about following a set of rules. It's about following a person. It's about walking in the footsteps of Jesus. And where our obedience to God is concerned, that image is teaching us three things. I've only got time to mention them. You're going to have to go away and work out the implications for yourself. But first, it means that our obedience to God must be a personal response. A personal response. I mean, quite obviously, we can't ask somebody else to obey God for us. We can encourage each other to do it. We can pray for one another to do it. But in the end, we have to make a decision to obey God for ourselves and then actually do it. Second, our obedience must be a wholehearted response. You see, there was never anything half-hearted about Jesus' obedience to the Father. He was never distracted by secondary things. It wasn't obedience on Sunday and then forgetting all about the Father the rest of the week. No, his whole purpose was to obey the Father's will in every detail, every day. And then third, our obedience will be a costly response. Because the path that Jesus walked led to the cross of course, ultimately it led to glory too, but the cross came first. And it's the same with us. Walking as Jesus did means taking up the cross. It means being willing to be publicly identified with Jesus, knowing that there are going to be times when we will suffer for it. Fatima knew all about that. Yes, there will be a crown in the end and the greatest joy we can ever imagine but the cross comes first. May God give each one of us the strength to carry it this week. Shall we pray together? Lord Jesus, we praise you for your atoning sacrifice that you were willing to bear the full force of the Father's righteous wrath against us and against our sin so that we might enjoy everlasting fellowship with God. Please help us to love your commands and give us the will to follow in your footsteps in all the details of our daily lives. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.